Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. You want protocols for procedures so that each procedure that comes in, okay, this is my UAE, you know, my uterine artery embo protocol. And then all the staff are on the same page as far as like, what are my pre-lab cutoffs? What are their pre-meds and post-meds? How do they get set up? What antibiotics do they get? All these things that are sort of automated and prepped because that's how you continue to provide state care. So it's important as we grow to make sure that we had standard protocols because, you know, early on I'd hear, oh, no, 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 we don't. That's not how we do it in a Vineland, Dr. Petruzzi. It's like, ooh, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me to hear. everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. BD understands that anything that can help to save time, space, and reduce complexity in the lab is essential. The Rotorex atherectomy system is simple to set up and easy to use, with a small plug-and-play capital component and reasonable handle that is easily draped. In a healthcare environment where costs matter, all device-related accessories are in each catheter set at no additional charge, including the Rotorex Guidewire. This device is not for use in cardiopulmonary, coronary, cerebral, iliac, renal, or venous vasculature. To learn more, visit bd.com rotorex. Click the link in the podcast notes for instructions for use for indications, contraindications, hazards, warnings, and precautions. How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop, and their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both 6 and 5 French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters 
in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, and my guests today are Dr. Nick Petruzzi, interventional radiologist and director of the Vascular Institute at Atlantic Medical Imaging, and Dr. Don Garbett, interventional radiologist and medical director of Renew Institute. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks, Allie. Happy to be here. Happy to be back. Thanks, Allie. We covered in our last podcast together some of the basics of starting an OBL in your combined IRDR group. Um, And we just had so much to talk about that we had to record a second episode. So we can just kind of jump right into it. A lot has happened in the past six months. Don, I think, had the biggest change. Um, His OBL opened. So Don, uh, any, any big updates for us? Yeah, so we're finally open. We've been live doing cases uh, for about the past month and a half, I guess. So still really early in our experience now. Awesome. And then Nick, any updates on your end? No, we're just still doing our thing. Continued expansion. I'm trying to remember exactly when we recorded it. Uh, We're working on just opening our uh, fourth OBL now. So I don't know if that was uh, before our last episode or not. Um, And we continue. We hired some new staff, new surgeons, new IRs. We're just doing our thing. Very cool. I think when we stopped last, we were talking a little bit about buy-in from our DR partners, buy-in from the hospitals. And now I'd like to get into the nitty-gritty about your timelines from once the idea was accepted to the time you opened. So Don, you are more recently in this world than Nick. Could you walk us through kind of what happened? Yeah. So I, I you can kind of think of two timelines, I guess, idea acceptance and then actual start to finish because idea acceptance, getting the partners all in a, in a row and then actually starting a process is a whole timeline in itself. And that was a couple of years even, but that was like two years just from the time that I got my partners in line and then actually started the project. And maybe that, that was somewhat because of COVID could have been quicker. Sure. Don, did you find new space? Did you get a whole separate space or were you using existing space that your group already had? That's really interesting because you have imaging centers, right? Yeah. And you were able to sort of bolster out of that. Yeah. So so I was curious. We have imaging centers, but they're completely full. There was no available space. So I had to start in and get completely new space. So as far as the timeline, that was number one, finding a space. And it was find existing space, find land figure out what was going to work financially as far as real estate, which is super expensive for commercial real estate. Very, very expensive. I was looking at an acre for $3 million. And then you're looking at construction costs, depending on square footage. If you're talking 10,000 square feet, it's 400 per square foot. Does that kind of mirror your experience, Nick? First steps were figuring out where you wanted to build it? I used, at least initially for our first two OBLs, our existing, because we had the imaging centers. And luckily Mm -hmm. I found we didn't have too much room, so I kind of squeezed it in. But it did make for a much quicker turnaround and a prettier pro forma, I suppose. I found like an old nukes area that they were doing like one bone scan a month or something. (laughs) Kicked IT out of a corner of a closet and found, you know, maybe an old janitor's closet or so. I think that's my office. 
Yeah, so we, we used that existing space for the first two. And then, yeah, we did have to obviously had construction costs and fit out, but it was certainly much quicker, a little more turnkey that way. But you're sacrificing getting the ideal layout and the ideal space to do the volume that you'd hope you would grow to. Our newer labs, I've had the same experience as Don, our third, and now, like I said, about to open our fourth. That's new space. And yeah, similar experience to Don. It's, it gets pretty costly, right? but it, especially, I guess, post-COVID, it's gotten worse. Don, you were able to turn an existing medical office building into your OBL, right? That Could you just tell the audience a little bit about how you happened upon that? Yeah. So I, I contacted a commercial real estate agent that our group had worked with before, and he showed me all around town. We looked at all kinds of stuff. There was one plastic surgeon who was basically kind of hanging up his hat or downsizing. He hadn't even decided. He had a really nice space, um, 10,000 square feet, top floor of a fancy building. And so big expense, big cost to buy some real estate. We're looking at buying some real estate. And we were, I was pricing construction versus existing. And basically, I could buy that space, basically refurb into angio suites, take ORs and turn them into angio suites, take his clinic space and kind of divide it up better. And maybe save some. In the end, it may have been more expensive to, to refurb. Ten thousand square feet refurbished. Uh, it costs about two million bucks. And I guess half of that is the angio suites because you dump a million in that, and then a million in construction. It's a lot. Plus paying for the space. Now, did you put fixed units in, Don? Is that so? Yeah, we put one fixed unit in, and then a nice mobile C arm in the other room. So two suites. Yeah, I'm similarly working on that now, and I feel a little your, bit of your pain. The fixed unit really adds a ton of costs compared to, you know, we own a C-arm in uh, our third OBL. I was fortunate enough to find a space that was like a uh, endoscopy center, and it was almost turnkey, except the rooms were a little bit tight. But otherwise, you could just bring the C-arms in. If we wanted to turn it to fixed unit, the cost really goes up, which is what I'm working on now, kind of as I redo my sort of flagship and busiest center and add a fixed unit. There's a whole lot more considerations that go into construction. I don't know if you had to change the footings and the support structure of the building, things like that, start to get involved. We were in the third floor of a building. And when you're putting a fixed unit in, you have to consider vibration. And so the floor was just meeting tolerance. And obviously, if you're putting a fixed unit in, a ceiling mount is great. But the, the vibration was going to be too far, so we couldn't do a ceiling unit because of that. So something to think about. Third floor adds vibration in the whole building. It's funny, yeah, because I, I had similar uh, lesson learned was find a one-story building if you can, because uh, yeah, it does. It's, as you get multiple stories, there's all these other, the sway of the unit, like you're saying with the vibration. You have to take all that into account, which I don't have an engineering background, so that this was kind of learned as we went. Learning commercial real estate, learning a bit of uh, engineering. I got to visit Watts Lab a while ago, and that's the one you're talking about, the endoscopy that's suite, That's the right? one, the endoscopy suite, yeah. The rooms were tight, but I figured Mike spends the bulk of his time there, so I didn't. I wasn't really going to modify it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but what they have a huge amount of is pre-op and post-op space, a ton, like mm -hmm. comparatively. Yeah. We would technically devote less to that and then more to the procedural space. The one that we are sort of building from scratch, that's exactly how it is laid out. You know, you want more space for your room or control room, especially when you have a fixed unit. That's just how that came. You know, I can recover like 20 patients or something like any given time. But the fit out, you know, was then minimal. Again, CR, but it wasn't a huge cost. But the timeline thing. So once, I guess the important timeline, once we took ownership of the suite or the real estate, we took ownership in August of 21. And then cases didn't start until November of 22. And what I thought was going to happen was we were going to be doing cases in six months. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how did that six month timeline come up? Was that based on estimates that you had with contractors or staffing estimates or insurance? I, so a consultant, I hired a consultant who's done other labs. I think you may have spoken with him. He did Fadi Saab's lab, Mustafa, a couple other folks that are kind of well-known and they had a good experience. And he basically said, I'm, I can get you up and running in six months if everything goes smooth. But it was just some of it's the, the COVID thing. We had doors. We're still waiting on doors. We have temporary doors up. We have temporary window coverings, the flooring. It's like that rubber flooring stuff. It was on back order. Oh, man. <laughs> My newest one was foiled by HVAC. I forget the exact specific part from HVAC, but that put a good six months away. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the fixed unit delivery, but they're like, we're ready. You tell us when the floor is in and we'll put it in. So we were literally waiting for the floor to put the fixed unit in, the rubber flooring. Yeah, I will say using our existing infrastructure, uh, my first two, it was it was fairly quick. Again, this was pre-COVID too, but within four to six months, we were going. Matter of fact, I think on the first one, it might only been like three months. Second, I had to do a little bit more modification. It definitely wasn't anything over six months. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> the other, one other thing that was kind of key to progress, I hired a consultant and immediately I was like, oh, they're going to take care of everything. And then within two months, maybe. I was like, there are essentially 25 projects happening all at the same time. And there's not one person running it all. There's a bunch of different people. One of my partners who has experience running projects, I certainly don't. He's like, Don, you're going to have to just run it. So every Thursday morning, I came in with my agenda at 6 a.m. and we'd work for two hours every Thursday morning for a whole year, just running project details. Where are we on this? Where are we on this? Where are we on this? So it was way more time intensive than I thought it was going to be for me. Who'd you run it with? Was it with your clinic manager and then whatever person was in charge of that project? Like, was she your side person that was always involved? Yeah. So I had my clinic manager, Lori, who was really, she was my clinic manager before we moved to the OBL. And then uh, we have a practice administrator who was like sort of peripherally helping with some of like the contracting. And then we have a, what is it called? Like our finance guy for the practice. Gotcha. He was doing the insurance contracting at the same time. And kind of a shortcut I didn't think would happen was he went in to negotiate contracts with the insurers and they just mirrored him. They said, oh, we'll give you the same, even though it's a different company. Wow. Actually, I've heard that insurance contracts, especially for Medicare, have gotten faster to get since COVID, which is bizarre, which you guys already have all yours. But that's what the word on the street is, is that it used to take like three months or something. And now it's like down to a few weeks, which is kind of wild. Yeah, it hasn't been a big hang up for us, but again, it's the same company. So those contracts just sort of transfer over. And we've had a couple carve outs like to just discuss with them, but been pretty straightforward. And I, again, I owe it to my administrative staff and they're pretty good at it and they've done it umpteen times as we've grown. So, but it hasn't been a, that surprisingly hasn't been a big hang up compared to some of the construction items and things we've discussed. Gotcha. Okay, well, we talked about construction. Let's talk a little bit about vendors. How did you go about evaluating different vendors for your OBL? First and foremost, I was like, well, whose products do I use and like? I mean, that's really where I started, which I think is totally reasonable because you don't want to stock your lab with a whole bunch of stuff you're not familiar with and then find out you're not as facile with these devices or something like that. I went with kind of my big three for us. I do think three is kind of the sweet spot. I've noticed as we've grown and we get more operators, different specialties, particular opinions on different devices. And uh, sometimes it gets a little chaotic when you have too many. So I think it's important to sort of 
you want options because you don't want to be all in bed with one vendor. And then the next thing you know, you're paying through the nose for something. You got no option. So I think it's important to have options, but you want to keep it limited too, because that's really where you're going to maximize your pricing and such on disposables. You can do higher volume for them. You're a bigger account for them. They're going to give you deeper discounts and you can start doing, you know, bulk orders and things of that nature. So that's really how I narrowed it down for, for myself. That worked out to really be Boston Scientific, BD, Bard and uh, Abbott. The three of them have been uh, great partners for the nuts and bolts of, of peripheral vascular is what I'm, is what I'm really focusing on here as far as stents and balloons and casters and such. How about you, Don? I'd say the same. You know, I was looking to keep as few vendors as possible, but looking for that sweet spot. And I think Boston makes a lot of, Boston carries just the wide variety of stuff. So there, it's an easy sell for Boston. And then like Nick was saying, you want to, basically they all base their pricing on how much you're purchasing. So if you're getting more from them, your pricing goes down. So you want to kind of keep things within a company. So I would say we're really Boston Phillips and Abbott but then there's Bard and then there's G-tubes and then there's tubes and whatever else you have to get. It starts to pile on. Yeah. Lepiodol, you're going all over the place. Yeah, no, you definitely, unfortunately, and then there's certain items that there aren't comparable products, like for instance, Viabonds, you know, or Stankrafts, um, you know, VBX, or I guess you could do ICAST, but it's not like every vendor carries a uh, Stankraft, you know, that you could use uh, for this. And as far as I'm concerned, a lot of those things are sort of the cost of doing business. And, you know, if you're doing these interventions, you need them from a safety standpoint. So you're always going to have these other gaps you sort of have to fill in with other vendors. How'd you guys pick an EMR for your OBL? It was the one interaction we actually had with consultant early on. Actually, I didn't have an EMR for the first almost two years. So that was pretty painful. We were basically charting everything in our packs and in our wrists, which you might imagine isn't the uh, most straightforward way to have E&M coding and patient follow-up and such. So I started sort of begging to have an EMR. Right around that time, we had spoken briefly to consultant. We were just about to open our second lab and they had made a recommendation based on their EMR. It was actually Vertex is what it's called. It's sort of customized towards vascular care, clinical care. And um, it's actually been quite great. I actually think it's very straightforward, but sort of just fell into that because they had recommended it. We I took a look at it, said this is very straightforward. I think sometimes, at least for me, some of the EMRs, they're so capable, but then like there's so many layers to it and it's a lot of stuff you don't need in vascular practice. So, you know, I don't need like Epic or something. It'd be great if I did to integrate with others, but, you know, I just wanted something that I could sort of reliably use and get my notes sort of completely documented, but banged out quickly. So I'm happy with it. How about you, Don? So we had an EMR in our clinic, which took years to get, but that, and we were, we were in the same thing, like packs, documenting in there, terrible. So we went with Streamline and uh, we guess we've been using it for like five years now. Sort of feels like we're growing out of it. And we were contracted to do Epic with our local healthcare system. And they sort of started this thing where they'll kind of export it to the local clinics at a discount. Sort of affordable, not super cheap, but it's affordable. It's not a million dollars at least. Um, so we signed up to do it and then we had a timeline and then like a regular old health system, we have the implementation call and they're like, so you guys are interested in Epic. And we're like, I, we did that like a year ago, guys. And everybody had a long pause and we were like, okay, we better call Streamline and tell them they got to implement fully for the OBL. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was a last minute change. Wow. Okay. 
And that's just because your health system is the big one, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Well, they think, the, you know, everybody thinks they're huge. Every health system will install as much bureaucracy as possible. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, one point that it reminds me that I think is important is I think regardless what EMR you choose, I think you have to be cognizant of a few things. And to me, I think it's less important what screen back end is and how you progress through the note. Because I feel like you do it enough times, you can sort of train a monkey to bounce between tabs and fill in the information. But I think the important part is that just like in, we have a radiology background, but you know, our product is our reports, right? And I kind of view it the same way when it comes to vascular consults and patient flow. I, I really think about what that product is. So I worked hard with our EMR to put together sort of a nice outlet consultation note with a nice header, sort of has has our practice, our locations, our physicians, our multiple specialties, and sort of lay it out in a nice referral note. And I sort of built our workflow around finishing that note. And then basically before you sign the chart, you're generating that product, that report. And then that's going to go out to um, not just the immediate refer, the podiatrist, the wound care doc, infectious disease, the family doc, what have you, it's actually my staff will build in their other specialists. So their cardiologist, their family doc, if wound care sends you the patient, I still want to keep the family doctor and infectious disease in the loop. So I think it's twofold. It's good clinical care. You have a nice free flow of information that you're sharing, but also kind of free marketing, right? Because you're kind of reminding them that you're out there and showing them. So To me, that was really important regardless of what EMR you had, that it's sort of before you sign that chart, you kind of put out that product. Okay. Yeah. Because nobody can read your images, right? Right. But the notes, man, they love the notes. I saw Watts do it. He specifically showed me. I thought it was pretty cool. He basically Mm -hmm. finished the console, went and was doing the note, and then with three clicks, mail merged it and sent it out to all the referrers, which is pretty cool. It was like click, 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 send. Yeah. It's pretty slick. Yep. And that's what we do the same thing, whether it be procedure or consult notes, but I, I found it to be useful. And to be honest, I, at the referrers, I think, find it very helpful because they always know what we're doing. At first, I was a little worried. I'm like, am I just going to pummel people with notes? And they're going to be like, can you please stop faxing me? I'm paying five yeah. cents a page or something. <laughs> so that, which brings up, I guess, to my second point was, I think in the ideal world, sort of pie in the sky, it's sad that in 2023, it's not that straightforward, but I think free communication between EMRs is kind of the holy grail that my notes don't have to fax and then get printed and then get scanned back into their EMR. But Nick, that would be communism. Oh, (laughs) yes. Okay. That's right. (laughs) We have these, I don't know, HL7 feeds and things like, why is it so hard just to communicate? I don't know, but it is. So I've got my mail merge and my Well, that kind of brings us to another step, um, which is marketing. I don't think we talked about this last time, but what are you guys doing to actively market your practice? Let me, I'll go quick because I know Nick's is very elaborate. He's just going to take my answers. (laughs) Yeah, this is what we do. No, I'll say exactly what Nick's going to say. No, so we're at least trying to do like three prong. So we have television, social, and print. And uh, we don't have boots on the ground marketers right now. Okay. Which is something we want to work on hiring. So we're looking at that. But our boots on the ground is me or one of my PAs or one of my partners go into somebody's clinic for now. Yeah. And that's for years what I really was in the, the same boat I spent. Well, I still do. But I think first and foremost, the important point is that the best marketing comes from when you yourself as a physician are 
meeting and discussing with other physicians, Ali, I know we spoke about this before as well, but nothing supplants just direct FaceTime with the referrer. I've also found it's very tempting because we all have busy lives and busy work schedule to uh, try and do like a quick lunch stop by. I think that is helpful. I mean, it's nice to have the FaceTime. Personally, I think breaking bread, sitting down and having a long conversation where you actually meet and understand each other and, and understand what they're looking for and sort of their philosophies of patient care. I think that's where long lasting relationships are really formed, at least in my experience. As far as marketing, so about two years in is when I actually hired dedicated marketers. Before then, I was, you know, sort of using some of my customer service reps for the diagnostic side of the imaging, and it wasn't terribly helpful. Not really their fault. You know, they didn't know the ins and outs of vascular marketing per se. The one thing is I, I should have done it sooner because that also paid dividends. And now we have, I have three dedicated boots on the ground marketing staff that have specific knowledge and understanding, you know, of where the patients come from, what they need and where they're going and sort of what we offer. So I've purposely kind of heavily incentivized them. So they, they have skin in the game to different areas. And I find that's where you start to see results. But again, I think if you're opening a lab from scratch, you really have to be all in, you know, to sort of meet your local community, local referrers personally. And then the reps do a great job of maintaining the relationships and maybe opening the door so you can get there. But you always have to have that physician to physician communication for a good longstanding relationship is what I've found. So Nick, okay, I have a question for you. I work in an environment where a lot of the primary doctors and subspecialists are hospital employed, right? So they are incentivized to send to their hospital systems. Do you think it's worth spending time with those folks and trying to get them? Or do you mainly just focus on independent practices? No, I think that's a really great point. I initially felt just like you were saying, like, oh, well, they're incentivized to do this. But when when push comes to shove and you, that's why I think these face-to-face meetings are really important. You'll find that most physicians, whether they're employed by a certain health system or ACO or whatever, most, I'm not going to say all, but most actually just care about good care. So overall, I found the overwhelming majority are just happy to know that we're delivering superior results to, you know, whatever other providers might be out there with superior communication and that we're interested and excited about doing it. And the vast majority actually will prefer that, which is refreshing because that's kind of why we all went into medicine, right? It was to deliver good care, not because we were going to punch a clock and have to auto refer someplace. So I found that to be the case most of the time. Okay. That's good to hear. What's your experience, Don, in dealing with employed physicians versus independent practices? Yeah, that's interesting. So I think our landscape, and maybe it's similar to Nick's, we have a lot of the primary care is now, we used to have a lot of different private practice primary care groups. And they've been slowly purchased up by private equity. So Optum just bought like the biggest group in town. But they're really just primary care. They they don't have the specialties within them. I think if you were in a town where the specialties were in that same group, that might be an issue. But all the specialties are essentially their own groups here in town. Yeah, mine's a mix. I've seen both. It does seem in wound docs, internal medicine, infectious disease, or podiatry, a lot of those are independent. I don't know. That's probably more of a national trend as well. I don't think there's any, this doesn't tend to be huge conglomerate practices of multiple podiatry. There's a few, there's a few, but they're usually still private, not owned by, you know, the ACO. Gotcha. We talked about real estate. We talked about setting up doing CRM versus fixed unit. 
Did you guys hire somebody to do all your insurance contracts or did you have people within your group that were already doing that? We had someone in our group already doing it. I thought I was going to have to hire a consultant, but then they turned out just within the group to do it, which was easy. Yeah, ours was uh, in-house as well. So I, that part was actually sort of turnkey for me. I'm fortunate that sort of our C-suite kind of was already familiar with that. So we didn't have to really delve into that too deep. Don, you mentioned that there's been a couple delays with your opening. Did you get any pressure from your diagnostic partners about that or grumblings about it? That, that's a good question. Yeah, I think there's grumbling the whole time. You know, we're, we're spending money for a year. What I told everybody was going to be six months and then six months goes by and we're, we hadn't even started construction. Uh, so there was a ton of grumbling and it's not just where's the project. It's we're spending our company's distributions that would be going to my partners and myself on that. So everyone felt it very personally in their pocketbooks and people started to become vocal, but I'm feeling it too. We're all in the same boat. Basically our income, I guess if you go into practice with somebody and you're like, we're going to open an office, you're pulling money out of your pocket. And even for a large group, it's still money out of your pocket. Sure. You feel like, oh, we're going to dilute that and not really feel it. But yeah, you definitely, we all felt it and we're still feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) My part, actually, this is interesting. So we're having trouble getting nursing because I don't know if you're experiencing the same thing out there, but nursing general nursing pay rates have skyrocketed with the whole COVID thing and then nurses leaving floor nursing. So we have nurses in our hospitals making 72 bucks an hour. And then I'm trying to hire a nurse. And then our HR looks at the rate in the, I forget the name of the thing, but they look at that median rate Mm -hmm. and it's like 40 bucks an hour. You can't hire anybody for 40 (laughs) bucks an hour. They just laugh and they're like, no, thank you. I'm making 72 at the hospital. Nurse practitioners are leaving their jobs to go because they can make more money as a floor nurse again. Mm-hmm. So we have one full-timer. We're still trying to hire more. But where I was going with this is one of my partners, his wife is a nurse and is, so she's like, I'll go work. I'll go make us money. So she's coming to work at the OBL and we have another wife. My wife just started working sort of. Yeah. Everyone's like chipping in because they feel it. It's family business. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's far worse post-COVID. I did not have this problem pre-COVID. I'm not sure why everyone became independent. I still, no one can explain to me why everyone became independently wealthy and no longer wants to work after COVID. But <laughs> but even everything, nurse, nursing, yep, PAs, NPs, mm-hmm. and also all the way down to schedulers and my MAs. It's the whole market. People are paying high dollars out there and they don't want to work for the sort of, you do the salary search and you're way off. They want twice as much. So that's been new. You know, that's that's new for us as well. But we are feeling the same thing here, you know, in New Jersey as well. I was amazed just like hiring an MA. I was like, no, there's no way they make that much. Yes. (laughs) And I don't know if you're throwing dollars out, but it's a lot. One of my MAs, left, true story, left to go back to Red Lobster because they were paying more than... Wow. Yeah. Costco's a competitor. Costco pays the the people who do the carts, put the carts away, like 25 bucks an hour. I used to work at Red Lobster in college, so I'm glad to hear that they've given their people a raise. That's really good to know. I thought about applying, but... On our end, like I, um, I think we're also having a lot of trouble retaining diagnostic radiologists too because mm-hmm. the telemarket's so good, and that moves the needle away from focus to outside projects like this. Yep, same experience here, and and I guess the job market's tightened too because I know my diagnostic partners are starting to hire like a year in advance. You know, they're hiring people for the following year. 
It's just wild. <laughs> yeah. None of this could have happened when I was, you know, coming out of training, of course. No. But yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I got my job during COVID and that some people were like taking away the slots. They were rescinding job offers. It could always be worse, I guess, right? No, that is, that is fortunate. There's one other thing. I don't want to back us up and derail us, but one thing that, and we've sort of been doing more of this every year we're in practice is getting involved in the clinical trials. And if you have, if you're somebody who has like an appetite, for, I'm, I'm always interested in that. I kind of like having a toe in research waters, you know, at all times. And the vendors have been really great with that. You know, as you, as the vendor spot you as someone who's really interested in that and sort of data conscious and you have kind of an interest in participating in those trials, they've, mm-hmm. they'll help sort of put you in touch with the national PIs or sort of suggest you. So I've, you know, found our way into several clinical trials, you know, mainly initially through vendor referrals. So I think it's something to keep in mind if you're somebody who really enjoys that. It's gotten to the point where we have four ongoing clinical trials right now and actually was able to hire a full-time research coordinator now that we have who sort of oversees that with experience and kind of helps keep me legit with keeping all my paperwork in order and drawers locked and such like that. So that's, that's also been uh, it really helpful. But once you have several clinical trials going, honestly, it, it pays for itself, you know, because you are reimbursed for those patient follow-ups and things like that. So you can afford to sort of have somebody dedicated to that. And that's kind of where we've gotten to, which I find that exciting. Yeah, that's something I haven't thought about at all. Do you do much of that, Don? Or We're trying to get one up and running. We've got a little army of med students who are working on some stuff for us with GAE. Nice. I don't know a lot of the inner workings as far as the financials. So that's interesting to hear. I would love to talk to Nick more about that after. Yeah, we certainly can. It wasn't my, my initial motive for it wasn't from a financial uh, basis, but it turns out, you know, at some point I had so many going on and there were other trials I really was interested in being a part of, mainly just to offer my patients access to sort of novel technologies that we mm-hmm. actually couldn't. Things like we were part of the Life BTK trial with the bioresorbable drug-eluting scaffold below the knee. So our patients were able to, you know, potentially receive these sort of novel treatments that they otherwise couldn't. But after we had several going, I realized, well, this actually could justify a, a full-time research coordinator. And so that's kind of where we're at now. But it's great. And it's it's good for, like I said, it's good for the patients. It's also good. There's a marketing angle to that as well. You know, it's, it's nice for your referrers to know that sort of you have these new and novel technologies and you're able to enroll in clinical trials, much like they might think of at tertiary care institutions, things of that nature. Well, having the research coordinator, that's what intrigues me because I'm like, we're going to do a trial. Okay, I have more work to do. But if the finances support a research coordinator, then I'm like, okay, bring on all the trials. Let's just, let's do a bunch of stuff. Yeah, there is still some work to it, but (laughs) I'm sure (laughs) it takes some obstacles away. Yes, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm sure the uh, national PIs are much more happy to have me as part of their trials now that I have the research coordinator than before, because it's far more organized, you know, it's a lot to keep track of. Well, that's great. It wasn't even on my radar. That's fantastic to know. All right. Talked about it a little bit with being open, but Nick, do you remember back to when your first year of being open and unanticipated challenges that you faced or lessons that you learned? There was a few lessons, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, Don touched on it earlier about nursing care. I think it's really important. You have to have nurses that you can count on. And so it's really important for you to sort of, I think, take as a physician, take a personal hand in who the nurses are, who's recovering these patients and make sure that because, right, you want to, the whole idea is to deliver elevated care, right, in a more streamlined environment. And so 
You want to make sure that your recovery area is familiar with groin hematomas and post checks and things like that. So we played musical chairs a little bit that first year, finding just the right fit and sort of I learned over time how to sort of spot those nurses and which nurses' skill sets translate best into the periprocedural or IR kind of arena um, of procedures. So that was one thing. Another thing is um, I think it's important to have some protocols in place and protocols in several facets. What I mean is you want protocols for procedures so that each procedure that comes in, okay, this is my UAE, you know, my uterine artery embo protocol. And then all the staff are on the same page as far as like, what are my pre-lab cutoffs? What are their pre-meds and post-meds? How do they get set up? What antibiotics do they get? All these things that are sort of automated and prepped because that's how you continue to provide state care. So it's important as we grow to make sure that we had standard protocols because early on I'd hear, oh, no, 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 we don't. That's not how we do it in uh, Vineland, Dr. Petruzzi. It's like, oh, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me to hear, you know. Don't tell me what I could do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and some part of me gets that too, because it makes me mildly nauseous to see that I'm reminiscent of a hospital. So you, you got to find that sweet spot. But there is truth in that. And I think you'll get safer when you have things sort of standardized. And th so that's protocols as far as procedures are concerned, but I also think it's important that I learned early on, it's important to have protocols also for transfers because you could be the best operator in the world, but patients are going to, you could be working on their plantar arch and they could still have an MI, you know, or something, you know, these are sick patients. And um, so what we've landed on over time, I've evolved into, I sort of have two separate protocols. I have kind of the transfer protocol where like this needs to be addressed urgent, but it's not super emergent, like there's thrombus or something like that, you know, and I want to lice it or something. And so that patient may be best served to go to a certain location with certain practitioners in the group or whatever. Whereas regardless where you're at, if you're having active chest pain and an MI or symptomatic bradycardia, or you're going to SVT, something like that, that's something that's emergent and you need to go to the nearest place there. So I found that it's easier. Of course, this is common sense, but you don't want to be figuring this out for the first time when it's happening. So sure. th this is something that's a little bit different, right, than a hospital and those people that have worked, I'm sure, in ambulatory surgery centers, it's no different, right? And that's kind of how they operate. But I think OBLs should be no different than that. It's important to have safety measures like that. The nursing challenge, a more specific challenge we had was, you know, we, we hired one nurse who I thought was really great. And she is a great nurse from the hospital, was working mostly in GI, and she would kind of float to the cath lab here and there and did mostly like biopsy stuff with us. So didn't really, didn't know our angio procedures, didn't know groins, didn't know embolization. And her first week with us, I was doing a tube change. This is for an example doing a NEF tube change. And I scheduled something very simple because I just want to go through the process. So scheduled an F tube. I said, go ahead, feel like you give some meds. Let's keep them comfortable. And I just scrub in and she just says, I'm giving one of her said. I was like, cool, that's good. And then I get my gloves on. I'm giving another one of her said. And then I walk over the patient. I'm giving another one of her said. And I look at my tech okay. and we smile. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess it's gonna be really comfortable. And then wire in, about tube in, literally one minute and three of her said later, and then we conference. So I think a mistake maybe that I made was not realizing up front the work you should do with the nurses. Like, let's sit down, let's talk about all the cases, at least when you're getting started. Like, here's what we're going to do. Here's about how much meds we'll give for each procedure. Here's the pain level we'll expect. Will the patient be fairly awake or not? Like going over those sort of expectations with nursing so that they're not having a 
totally different idea from what you have in the procedure, especially if you're doing something with local and they understand that the patients go through this on every month and they know it's going to hurt a little bit, but they'd rather not get sedatives. Sort of those kind of expectations. So in the hospital, you know, like you do a procedure and I don't know if you guys experience this, but you go back to your desk and you like got to put the procedure orders in, post-procedure orders yeah. in Epic and it takes me five minutes to click through all the things. Mm-hmm. And it's the same every time, right? You're doing the same thing every time, but the hospital, you got to put it in. They don't have, they can't do the standing orders like they used to do 10 years ago. And then someone's like, hey, doc, I got to talk to you about a case and you forget to do your orders. And then 10 minutes later, someone's calling you and they're doing this safety stop thing because they don't have orders that say the patient can eat. So that's at the hospital. In the OBL, I thought, oh, I'm going to have my standing orders and everyone will just understand it and do it. And no one's going to call me and say, hey, doc, where's my orders? But they're coming from the hospital. So they were expecting me to put something in the computer as far as my post orders. And I'm like, well, you have the sheet that says exactly what to do. But I didn't have the pre-conference with them about it. Again, discussing this guides you right through it. And they're like, well, it's not in the computer. It's got to be in the computer. See? Protocols. Protocols. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Actually, I found the easiest way to do that is a couple of things come to mind. One is I, I found it very helpful to have like certain nurses really excel in sedation, like intraprocedurally, and they just do a great job. They're just like versed whispers or something because they know what to expect. They see you grabbing an angioplasty balloon. This is going to hurt a little bit. Need a baby dose. They realize that what you're doing, though, isn't generally painful. It's just a matter of fact of just keeping them in that sort of light sleep. And certain nurses just, it comes supernatural. So I've actually created sort of pools of the recovery nurses. And so they've gotten, they're really familiar. I mean, and some of them have picked up really specific things. They've done a great job. Like, hey, the intervention leg, not the stick is a little bit, the thigh is a little bit fur, you know, like things that might not get picked up early on. And so I think um, it's been helpful to have them in sort of different roles and kind of sub-specialize their roles. And the other thing, Don, with, from the protocols that I found was helpful is you want to sign those orders so you can have sort of those standing order sets. And I've worked with our EMR vendor to just build those out so that when I'm actually signing the chart and signing my notes, I'm also signing all those orders, those protocols. Nice. It's funny how so much of what you're saying, Nick, far into the future from where Don and I are now is kind of moving towards what the hospital has, but like doing it right, doing it better and doing it with you designing stuff. So that's the difference, right? So those protocols are driven by, so we have section meetings I try to have for a year, quarterly section meetings. So those protocols are really devised and scrubbed and decided by the physicians. It's myself and my partners. And we say, this is how we want to handle that. Not only that, we create sort of larger standards of practice. Like how do we want to, as a group, handle non-thrombotic iliocable lesions? Like how aggressive do we want to be? Do, you, do we treat a C3 that way or do you have to have a venous ulcer? But it all sort of trickles down from those meetings. And so that's the big difference, right? Like I said, it makes me mildly nauseous to head the hospital direction. But the difference is this is actually evidence data driven by the people in the trenches, you know, seeing the patients and treating them. You both have a multi-specialty clinic, right? So, Nick, you have vascular surgeons. Do you have other physicians in there? No, IR and vascular surgery. Yep. Okay. And then, Don, you have a physical therapist, right? That's working. Is Is that person in the actual Renew or are they adjacent to it? Yeah. So they, they actually rent out a space within our space. So they have, I don't know, like 20 by 20 room. It's like a big workout room, PT. So yeah, we, this is interesting. So when we were building this out, some of my MSK partners, 
they've been wanting to have an outpatient procedural based practice for many years. And we're just like kind of doing it in the imaging center, doing injections here and there. And they're just doing it in the, they don't have a clinic. So they're not like seeing and evaluating. They're just, they're talking to ortho. They'll say, hey, yeah, we can do a PRP on that. We could do like some injection in some muscle. And they'll say, like, send the order, right? And with no consults, I'll just show up, inject the thing. So, and it, it's part of diagnostic practice. So that's sort of the accepted practice. So one of my partners really launched onto this or latched onto it when we were doing it. So now we have a MSK doc at the clinic every day and they're seeing consults. And then it's sort of, it's cool because it's allowed them to develop their practice more. So now they talk a lot to ortho. Ortho sends them a lot of patients. Primary care sends them patients. They've got referrals off the street as well. And they're doing all kinds of like pain stuff. And I think we're starting to merge because there's knee pain and they're doing genicular nerve blocks and ablations. And now that's feeding into genicular embolization. Now they got frozen shoulder patients coming to see them. They're really branching out into all kind of like tendon therapies and they're looking at biologicals. So they're really bringing in a whole different area into our clinic. I don't even know most of it, but I'm trying to keep abreast of it. And they want to do, one of them already brought up, he wants to do an annual conference with the thought of, we're in Eugene, Oregon, where it's like runner's heaven here. This is where runners go and eventually spend their whole life here and run in the mountains. So he's trying to turn it into like Eugene, the running capital, and then he's going to have this orthopedic mix with the ortho group and us. And they're trying to build like a, a some sort of cool combo thing. And this goes into why we're called Renew Institute and not Renew Vascular Institute. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I really fought hard to try and have vascular in there, but it was like, it's exclusionary to them. And so it was, it would have been, it's a little bit of a stifle as far as marketing, but we hired a marketing company and they're like, so Nike, it's not a shoe. It's just Nike and Apple. It's not a computer. It's just an Apple. It's true. Yeah. So they sold us on the idea. We're trying to do it anyway. I think they're probably are correct, but that's really interesting about the, the physical therapy. I mean, to pick your brain on that, you know, that's really, you have them uh, the same setting. I haven't ever thought of that. Well, I was wanting to have, I actually wanted to hire a podiatrist to be in our office, but they had the idea of bringing PT in and the, the PT we have is interesting. He's a, he was a very high level soccer player, got injured, went back, got educated on PT. And now he basically people fly in to get PT from him. He's all cash business. It's very interesting, hmm. but high level MSK stuff. Yeah. Early on, I thought about, you know, a diversifying to different specialists. I know you're asking, do we have any others as far as, like you said, Don, like podiatry or other specialties, but I don't know. I decided, I mean, we have vascular surgeon, but we're all kind of vascular focused and I wanted to remain a little Switzerland with it too, because I have a whole network, right, of different referrers that are sending me different patients. And so I started to get, I'm like, well, if I have this specialty, then they might not refer. And, and there were actually bigger implications too, when you're part of an imaging group, which is a little, a little bit unique. When you're in a DR group, you don't want to sort of piss off, you know, five other imaging referrers, you know, as well. So that, that was another reason why I sort of shot away from that. Yeah. Well, PT becomes easy in that sense. Yeah. You're not pissing anybody off. No, I actually think that's why I said I'm actually curious. I'll have to pick your brain on that because that's interesting. Well, cool. I think we talked a lot about kind of how, how you guys got to where you are. If there was one thing that you could do differently, if you had to do it over again, what would it be? I'd build it bigger from the start, actually. I should have had more faith in myself. I didn't want to let my, I, you know, I always wanted to uh, under promise over deliver. And that's kind of what we have a reputation for. So there's something to be said about that as well. But I am redoing kind of my main lab and, and sort of renovating that. And it's 
And because of then the, well, then the pandemic hit, okay, well then we'll wait another year. Oh, we can't get an HVAC panel. So I would have just went bigger from the uh, start. I'd say have a little more faith in yourself. I know it is an overwhelming project from the start, but I think you have to believe in yourself. So that's what I would do differently. How about you, Don? I Taj Mahaled it from the beginning. So I'm not sure. I could have gone cheaper and smaller. I'm trying to think what, what could I have done different? I don't know. You know, I hired a consultant to kind of like take care of the project, but then I'm still taking care of the project. I feel like I needed an MBA, honestly. You know, yes, I do know. Visiting more OBLs beforehand. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I've, I've been like, after the fact, going to visit, like I, I went and visited one of Petruzzi's labs with Mike Watts and I went and visited Melton. I just wanted to see like how places that are running, what are all the elements that make it run smoothly? And, you know, I did visit labs before, but it's all these things you don't notice. Like you don't notice the protocols and you don't notice how many, oh, how many nurses did they have working at, during the day to support this many cases? And hey, when they're in clinic, what, how many support staff do they have in that clinic? And are there prior auth people? Do they bill? All these questions that when you visit the first time before you're in it, you're just like, oh, this is great. This is really cool. Yeah. They have balloons and wires. And then you don't get all the like important stuff. Who's managing the place? Sure. But if you do it too much early on, then you don't even know the questions to ask anyway. Yeah, that's the problem. Probably we have death forums, you know, where we're, we, we work together and always have communication. You know, you pick my brain, I'll pick yours. Gosh, yeah, that's been the, the greatest thing for me and, you know, trying to develop is just talking to guys like you who are at different stages in this. Don teaches me stuff that, Nick, you probably haven't thought about for 10 years. And same thing, Nick, you have the Yoda perspective of having done this for so long. I Actually, I talked to Bill Julian this morning, too. Oh, he's the Yoda. Yeah. Yeah. The true original. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just um, it's a great community. I think that IR doctors want to support other IR doctors. And there's a lot of interest from my generation in working in that practice environment, so much so that I think you saw SIR is going to have a special OBL sessions this year, which is not something that they've ever done before. So it's slow to come, but it's coming. People are understanding and we have to be able to control the narrative a little bit better. And that's why I'm glad things like Backtable exist. Well, and I think also OEIS, anyone who's thinking about it, OEIS, great platform great conference and with a lot of people doing the same thing to have those conversations, a great place to visit. Yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge. I try to go every few years at the very least because you always pick up new things and it's really the only meeting that's sort of dedicated to that. So it's been super helpful. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about? We kind of covered everything. I got nothing else. All my knowledge, it's gone. I want to know about, actually want to know about something. Nick, you do a, like a symposium every year, don't you? I do. Yeah. Like for your practice? Yeah, we do a CME course every year with live case uh, too. And we do bring in some national speakers. And so I just kind of grown. We had a little auditorium that sat like 20 people in our practice in our one imaging center. So I just kind of started it there in 2015, I think. It was just like me and 10 podiatrists or so came and, you know, myself and my partners gave some lectures about it. But it's, yeah, it's kind of evolved. So now we do, like I said, a live case with, with you know, a panel multiple speakers. And we've kind of branched out trying to keep topics kind of new and interesting. We do it in Atlantic City, which is not too far from my practice. And it makes a nice, you know, destination so you can stay over there. It's been really fun, actually. I'm really glad that we did that. And I guess this past year, yeah, that was, I guess we did it in 2014. Yeah. Cause that was my eighth this past year. So I would recommend that it's great. And the referrers enjoy it. You get some industry support, nothing crazy, but just to set up a table and show some of their equipment or so. 
uh, yeah, I'm happy to help. You know, if you have interest in doing something similar, to at least get you off the ground running, it's not it's not terribly challenging. Yeah, I think it'd be good, you know, refers, but even my own partners to like learn what we do. <laughs> that's true. You know, that's a great point because my partners have started to come and and a lot of the diagnostic guys show up and I'm like, what are you doing here? You know, Tom is like, oh, well, I just wanted to kind of see, you know, so that's been nice. And it's led to greater understanding of what we do and why we do it. So it's a good point. Thank you both for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights with me and with our audience. For those of our listeners who don't know, both of these guys are extremely approachable. If you have any questions, please just reach out to them over social media and I'm sure they'd be happy to help. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Anybody can can reach out to me. Thanks so much for having me on, Allie. It's been fun. Same. Thank you, Allie. And yeah, please do feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription. A great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.